welcome back to your Voice First podcast, where we discuss the latest in conversational AI and blockchain technology. Today, we've got three items on the agenda. Alexa's in-skill purchasing in Canada is now available in private beta. We got the invite. Here's what it's been like for us to build. A section from Amazon Unbound about Amazon Prime video versus Netflix. And for blockchain, discussing the different libraries for connecting with blockchains, including Web3, Ethers, and then provider-specific libraries. Let's get started. Amazon Alexa developers can now start to earn money on their skills in Canada. If you've never heard of in-skill purchasing before, in-skill purchasing lets you sell premium content such as game features, interactive stories, inside of your custom skills. Buying these products inside of a skill is seamless to a user. They might ask to shop for products, buy products by name, or agree to purchase suggestions that you make during the skill sessions. Customers pay for products by using the payment method that's associated with their Amazon account. As of today, Amazon supports a total of seven different locales globally that support in-skill purchasing. The United States, obviously. Then there's their UK domain, which includes a lot of uh, countries inside of the EU. Then you've got Japan. You've got uh, Germany. You've got Spain. You've got France. You've got Italy. But Canada's been missing from that list until now. We got an email a couple weeks ago, actually a couple months ago, it was way back in May. Hi, I'm a business development manager for Amazon Alexa Canada and wanted to reach out about enabling in-skill purchasing for your skills in the Canadian locale. We'll be launching our beta in July with the general availability launch in October. We'd love to include your sleep sound skills and any other skills that you have in the beta or launch. Be happy to discuss further. We got that initial email back in May, which got our team discussing whether or not we wanted to be included. From there, we found out that we would actually be able to start playing around in the SDK on August 15th. It's now September 10th, and I implemented in-skill purchasing inside of all of our sleep sound skills for the Canadian locale. And as I was trying to test, it was failing inside of the Alexa Dev console, and I wasn't able to emulate it on my devices because I don't have the locale of Canada set up. We've been emailing back and forth with our representative at Amazon, and their response has been, Sorry for the slow reply. Thought I replied to this. We're having some bugs with the beta, unfortunately, in regards to customer experience testing. I should have more details next week. Sorry for any inconvenience. Hope to fix it soon. Let me know if you have any questions. I didn't hear anything back, so I pinged them, and then I got another reply. Sorry, hoping to have more information today regarding the customer experience bugs. Apologize through the delay as we work through some technical issues on our end. This experience with trying to get in-skill purchasing working for the Canadian locale is highlighting to me one of the big reasons I've been focusing more of my energy into blockchain and less into Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, and Voice. And this issue was highlighted last night at the Bitcoin Mixer as well, but let's let's talk. What is the issue? So conversational AI is an interface that's built on top of existing Web2 protocols. 
These interfaces are not open and public. They are highly centralized and owned by the biggest cloud providers such as Google, Amazon, Microsoft, etc. And these protocols were not built with their own financial layer. They leverage existing fiat currencies. One of the downsides of that is each time you want to scale to a different market, you've got to comply with each of those countries' laws. You've got to get a merchant account for that country. You've got to build the rails so that payments can be accepted for that country's fiat currency. And then you've got to figure out how to make that interact with every other country's currency globally. Compare that to a blockchain network where blockchain is a protocol instead of an interface. It comes built on top of payment rails. So every single API call and uh, service that you interact with has the ability to use payments right out of the box. So Amazon Alexa has been out for getting close to 10 years now, and they're just starting to roll out the beta, a very buggy beta for in-scale purchasing for Canada. Compare that with Bitcoin that's had payments globally since day one, Ethereum that's had payments globally since day one. And then even newer blockchains like the Flow blockchain built by Dapper Labs or even Solana that's been pumping a lot recently. All of those have payments that work globally and you'll never see them talking about a Canadian release of their payments infrastructure because the blockchain protocol is built with payments in mind from the ground level. I'm wondering right now when we'll be able to leverage blockchain payments inside of an Alexa skill. I've been wondering in the Alexa skills that we've built, can we use account linking with MetaMask? Could we have an Alexa uh, account linking card pop up, prompt them to sign in with OAuth, OAuth them with MetaMask, um, so that for future transactions, we can have their approval already to be able to sign transactions. That doesn't sound possible because typically in MetaMask, uh, you approve every transaction and MetaMask holds onto your keys. So in order to have that seamless approval you need to be able to approve a transaction without having them verbally confirm it to metamask there would need to be much more tightly coupled infrastructure between the amazon alexa sdk and metamask's sdk maybe even at the minimum so that instead of needing you to click and having a browser-based wallet creating something like a voice-based wallet where your approval to access your private key and to sign a transaction comes from your voice signature. But continuing to stay on the Amazon theme, next up we're going to be reading a section from Amazon Unbound discussing two competing technologies, Amazon Prime Video and Netflix. Let's get to it. following are quotes from the section Bombing Hollywood from the book Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire, by Brad Stone, author of The Everything Store. As reporters and editors at the Washington Post grappled with the surprising victory of Donald Trump in late 2016, publicists for Amazon's television and film division were immersed in a much different challenge. How to conduct a buzz-generating campaign for its Oscar-worthy movie, Manchester by the Sea. The publicists were brainstorming when one had the idea of asking the boss himself whether he'd consider hosting a party for the film in Los Angeles. They emailed him and later recalled getting an unusually speedy reply 
Yes, let's do it at my house. On Saturday evening, December 3rd, a cool cloudless night, celebrities descended on Bezos' 12,000 square foot Spanish-style estate in Beverly Hills, which he'd purchased nine years earlier for $24 million. An extravagant tent-like structure was erected in the backyard on a decoratively tiled outdoor patio near the swimming pool. One of the film's producers, Matt Damon, and its star Casey Affleck held court while actors, directors, and agents lined up at the well-stocked open bar. Bezos was the target of a joke in Jimmy Fallon's opening monologue at the Golden Globes. That night, he hosted, uh, Bezos hosted one of the buzziest after parties in the evening in the Stardust Ballroom of the Beverly Hills Hinton. Casey Affleck collected the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Dramatic Film. The following month, he won the equivalent award at the Oscars, despite a gathering storm of controversy involving past allegations of sexual harassment levied against him by former colleagues. Amazon was now mentioned in the same breath as Netflix, another Hollywood upstart composing a radical future for the entertainment business. But inside Amazon Studios, far away from the glamour, tensions were rising. Independent movies like Manchester by the Sea and niche TV hits like Transparent, about a Jewish family in LA navigating issues of gender identity, garnered acclaim and accolades, but they were not the kind of mainstream entertainment that could attract large audiences around the world and nurture other parts of Bezos' e-commerce empire. So Bezos issued an edict to Roy Price that he already embattled in the already embattled executives at Amazon Studios. It would hover above them like a sword of Democles and contribute to an unlikely chain of events that would remove the luster from Amazon's Hollywood effort and temporarily embroider it in controversy. Quote from Bezos, I want my Game of Thrones. In late 2010, Amazon was one of several companies selling online access to an identical catalog of movies and TV shows. Customers could spend a few dollars to stream a title once over the internet, or they could pay more to own it and access it repeatedly. Meanwhile, Netflix had introduced an $8 a month service, totally independent from its original DVD by mail program. It allowed subscribers to stream the older TV shows and films in the company's digital catalog at any time. Even though Netflix's library generally did not include new releases and the company was not yet producing its own content, its customers as well as investors were responding favorably to its push for a less restrictive and more customer-friendly future for home entertainment. Amazon executives had periodically considered acquiring Netflix over the years, but always considered the price too high and so never seriously pursued it. Now it seemed like they'd missed their chance. The Los Gatos California company was evolving into a serious competitor. Characteristically, Bezos was unwilling to cede a significant opportunity to a rival. He asked Bill Carr, the vice president, in charge of digital music and video to come up with a way to compete in the emerging business of subscription video on demand, or SVOD. They met frequently over the course of the next few months, and then one day Bezos presented the answer himself. They'd offer a subscription video service for free to members of Amazon Prime. In retrospect, the solution was ingenious. Amazon customers would have balked at paying extra for a service that was inferior to Netflix's more established offering. Introducing streaming as a free benefit, people do tend to gravitate towards free things, could tip some Prime members into rationalizing their annual membership fee, even if they only ordered from the site a few times a year. These were still lean times for Amazon, so Carr was given what he felt was a considerable budget of around $30 million to launch the service called Prime Video. 
He had no idea that four years later, Amazon executives would be gathering to consider paying $240 million to license a library of programming from 20th Century Fox, including hit shows like 24. During the meeting, they debated whether Amazon had ever spent that much on anything in its 20-year history, including the new headquarters. They were building a few blocks away from South Lake Union in Seattle's Denny Triangle neighborhood. Comcast did a deal with Netflix to include it in its set-top boxes, even though Reed Hastings hadn't made many friends there by calling its proposed 2014 merger with Time Warner Cable anti-competitive. Comcast would end up promoting Netflix in all of its marketing. Amazon had to tuck its tail between its legs and a few years later reached its own agreement with the cable company. Such duels with Netflix to acquire premium programming and distribution were expensive, exhausting, and in the end, did little to change the competitive balance of power. Both companies had learned a valuable lesson, gleaned a generation ago by premium TV channels like HBO and Showtime. By competing to pay top dollar to license various films and shows, they had enriched the Hollywood studios and other entertainment industry incumbents, but ended up with cash screening services that were difficult to distinguish from each other. If they wanted to attract viewers with truly unique video offerings, it made much more sense to try to create hit TV shows and films themselves. My biggest takeaway from this is the importance of competition while also not staying focused on competing. Competition was beneficial to all customers in the SVOD or streaming video on demand space because it allowed customers to get the best product because each of the companies, Prime Video and Netflix, were competing to create the best offering for customers, leading to the best prices, the best selection, and constantly having both companies fight to create the best offering for customers. Now, it started to get bad when they competed over each other, like Showtime and HBO, and they just were competing on the same metrics. Oh, Netflix is doing this, then we have to do this too. Netflix is licensing this show, we've got to license a better show. And once you're just paying attention to the competition and copying it, you're creating the same product, you're creating noise in the space, and you're inevitably wasting a lot of money by not trying to be authentic, but trying to copy. Escape competition through authenticity. That's a quote from Naval. And what both companies eventually learned is the bulk of the money comes from shows that are made in-house instead of licensing other companies' content and other studios' content. So, to summarize, competition is good, it helps customers get the best product, and it helps innovation continue to thrive. But don't fight with your competitor to try to copy them. Escape that competition through authenticity. Competition's good to have. Monopolies should be sought only by being authentic in a competitive space. For the final piece of today's episode, we're going to go into the difference between three competing libraries, or I guess even more than three, in the Web3 space, which is even newer than Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant. Those libraries are Web3, Ethers.js, and provider libraries. Let's get started. Over at Mint Songs, we're working on getting purchasing rolled out for our big open beta release coming in the next couple weeks. Now, for our purchasing user experience flow, we've got to decide which library do we want to be interacting with the blockchain. Now, our blockchain of choice is Polygon's blockchain, which allows us to uh, create transactions that cost the users negligible amounts of money and allow musicians to mint songs for $0 minting fees. 
in this research of which library we wanted to use, I wrote up a Notion doc, which I'm going to read through now, which discusses the benefits of Ethers, Web3.js, as well as provider libraries. Weighing the pros and cons of all of the libraries to decide which is best for the Minsong's long-term goals. Here's a quote from the Amphira team. Web3.js and Ethers.js are both JavaScript libraries that allow developers to interact with the Ethereum blockchain. They're both great libraries. Either library will meet the needs of most Ethereum developers. Web3.js has a community of users and maintainers associated with the Ethereum Foundation. It has a good API reference. It's been around since 2015 and has seen extensive use by many projects. Due to that fact, the library is seen as the go-to in many build-your-first-dap tutorials. Ethers.js is excellent because it's a small, compact library with a large number of test cases. It has, it has a good getting-started documentation, making it accessible to new users. Simple and intuitive are words that are often used by developers to describe their experience with Ethers.js, and the library has gained in popularity over the past two years, seeing increasing downloads and usage by projects. Some statistics. Weekly downloads. Ethers.js gets around 317,000 weekly downloads. Web3.js gets around 286,000. And the provider library we were looking at gets around 2,900. So the winner there is Ethers.js at 317,000. And the provider library is 1 100th of the weekly downloads that Ethers gets. And Web3.js is about 40 or 50,000 downloads behind Ethers. As for unpacked size, so the size of the library when fully unpacked, Ethers.js is 10.2 megabytes, Web3.js is 5.77 megabytes, so around half the size, and uh, the provider library is 1.6, so significantly smaller size for the provider library uh, than the other two alternatives. Finally, the last published date, as in how often is the library being updated, is it still actively being updated? Ethers.js was updated 12 days ago, Web3.js was updated 25 days ago, so almost a month, and the provider library was about 12 days ago as well. All of those were updated within the last month, so I called that one a wash or a tie. So in terms of winners, weekly downloads, Ethers.js was the best. The unpacked size, so the smallest library, the provider library was the best. And last published, they all seem to be updated fairly regularly, saying that there's actually a lot of demand and uh, developers working here in the blockchain space to keep libraries updated with the latest and greatest technology. All three of the libraries have pretty good documentation. Um, the, the, the field is updating rapidly, so tutorials and some documentation that gets right can get outdated quickly. However, the fact that they do all have extensive documentation that is constantly being updated is really nice when you're coming into a new protocol such as blockchain as a developer and you want to learn. Now, although we introduced this in the Infura documentation saying that it's just for interacting with Ethereum nodes, um, these libraries actually work with any EVM-compatible blockchain, whether that is Polygon or Ethereum or any other... Uh, like, it also works with other Layer 2 scaling solutions such as Arbitrum and Optimism. It's not just Ethereum that these libraries work with, but the broader blockchain ecosystem. The biggest differences from an announcement of Ethers.js. One major difference between Ethers.js and Web3 is how they handle key management and interaction with the Ethereum blockchain. Web3 assumes that there's a local node connected to the application. 
that node is assumed to store keys, sign transactions, and interact with and read the Ethereum blockchain. In reality, this is not the case. Most users are running Geth locally. They're not running Geth locally. MetaMask effectively emulates that environment through the web browser. And so most Web3 apps require MetaMask to hold keys, sign transactions, and interact with the Ethereum mainnet. Ethers.js takes a different approach that they believe gives developers more flexibility. Ethers.js separates the node into two separate roles. There's a wallet, which holds keys and signed transactions, and a provider that serves as an anonymous connection to the Ethereum network, checking state and sending transactions. That being said, what is Web3 and what is, what is Ethers? Web3 is a collection of libraries that allow you to interact with a local or remote blockchain node using HTTP, IPC, or WebSocket. It was built within the Ethereum Foundation, so if you want something that is as close to Ethereum standard as possible, Web3 is going to very tightly couple you with the Ethereum Foundation's uh, development mentalities and design architecture. Ethers.js is a library that aims to be complete and compact a library for interacting with the Ethereum blockchain and its ecosystem. It was originally designed for use with Ethers.io and has since expanded into a much more general purpose library. If you look around on Reddit or you just search these two libraries, a lot of developers will hype up the pros of Ethers being smaller, more well-tested, better documented, more well-maintained, less buggy, um, something called ENS, the Ethereum name service, similar to the DNS of the Web2 world where you can register a, a domain name. ENS names end with .eth, and in Ethers.js, ENS names are treated like first-class citizens. And key management and state is, there's a separation of concerns in Ethers that doesn't exist in Web3.js, and in Ethers you can also wait for transactions to complete. You can, there's a function called dot wait when you are running a transaction, so you can actually wait for a transaction to be complete, which is a functionality that does not exist over in the Web3.js library. Now for our use case, we are working on the Polygon blockchain, so I asked the question, what are the considerations we need to make for Polygon? Well, interacting with the Polygon blockchain is actually handled by our JSON RPC provider. In our case, that RPC provider is a third-party provider. It's one of the bigger names. If you want to find out what RPC providers are out there, you can just look up RPC providers. So our provider handles our direct interactions with the Polygon blockchain. Our provider supports both Web3.js, Ethers.js, as well as their own provider library. Therefore, any of the library options will work with Polygon's blockchain because they'll all interact with our provider, which communicates with Polygon. All right, so if all of them will work for the Polygon blockchain, which ones will work with our provider? Because we've picked this provider, we wanna work with this provider. Can we only use one library versus the other with our provider? Um, in our case, our provider supports both Web3.js and Ethers. Additionally, our provider recommends their own custom Web3 library. So to initialize Ethers, inside of an application you would just get the url from your provider and then you would set up ethers.providers.json rpc provider and then pass in the parameter of your url and then that would give you back a custom http provider for ethers for web3.js you just on the first line require web3 
And then whenever you want to initialize Web3, you would just say new Web3 and then pass in your provider URL. But then finally, for our provider library, you would, on the first line, import your provider library. And then on the next line, you would instantiate that provider library by passing in your uh, URL. Now, in all cases, to instantiate a, uh, a Web3 interaction or a blockchain or interaction layer takes two lines of code. Super simple. All you got to do is pass in your API key, and then you're ready to start making calls, signing transactions, interacting with smart contracts, and building your dApp on the blockchain. But now let's talk about the provider library. So we've talked about Web3.js and Ethers, and up until this point, Ethers.js has pretty much been seen as the winner. Pretty across the board, everyone talks about Ethers.js in the development community. So the only reason, why would you ever want to go with a provider library if Ethers.js is better, smaller, faster, more well-maintained, with more weekly downloads and a better community? Well, we've got a provider and it's beneficial for us to leverage their provider library because of how they handle public versus private keys. Our provider does not manage any sort of private keys. So transactions that are sent via our provider must be signed ahead of time using another provider, such as Web3 or Ethers or a wallet. Now, in the provider's library, they have uh, in their documentation they say that most requests will be sent through the provider, but requests involving signing or sending transactions are sent via a browser provider such as MetaMask or Trust Wallet if the user has it installed, or via a custom provider specified in options. So if we don't go with the provider library, I have to then figure out, okay, we have to sign a transaction using a wallet, and then I have to send a signed transaction over to our provider, which after playing with it for a couple hours over this week, has been a very frustrating process. Um, after pounding my head trying to use Ethers for a long time, we ended up deciding uh, to go with our provider library for now while we try to, in the longer term, figure out how to wane our independence from uh, our provider library and go with the Ethers implementation instead. It is a little bit of tech debt, but right now speed is essential in the blockchain and NFT space. It is an early market that is getting more and more crowded by the day, and we are highly differentiated, so we're in closed beta. We've got a lot of demand for our service, and our goal is to get out to open beta as quickly as possible in the next couple days and weeks. So we have gone with our provider library for now with the intention of transitioning into Ethers in the long term. If you want to learn more about Mint Songs and what we're working on, check us out on any social media platform. Just look up Mint Songs. You can join our Discord and join the closed beta, or... By the time you're listening to this episode, we may already be out in open beta. You can check us out at mintsongs.com. That's it for this episode. If you have any questions, reach out to me on any social media platform at sweetman.eth or sweetmantech. Um, that's it. Thanks for listening. This is Sweets signing off.